0: Well, this morning we have the privilege of hearing from Dr. Harry Shields. He's been here uh, multiple times uh, and is a friend of Parkview, an excellent communicator and a pastor's heart. And so would you help me in welcoming Dr. Harry Shields?
1: Thank you. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be with you again, and thank you for your very warm welcome. As we continue uh, in our worship together, we come to the ministry of the Word, and so I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1, turn on your electronic devices, and uh, find your way to uh, Daniel chapter 1. I'm going to be reading some select verses from chapter 1. You'll see them on the screen, and then uh, one short New Testament passage that I would like for us to hear as well. Daniel chapter 1. And would you uh, follow along as I read. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. And then verse 18, at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. And then I'm reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. "'But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people.'" but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the Word of God, and we ask the Spirit of the living God to take His Word, His truth, and apply it to our hearts, both now and for as long as He gives us life. There are times in all of our lives where we end up in certain places that we really don't want to be. I'm not talking about those times when you take a right turn instead of a left turn and uh, find yourself in another community you never planned on. I'm not talking about those days when you think you've left early enough and you still find yourself in a traffic jam. Now, I'm talking about those times that seem to be extended we find ourselves in those places, those circumstances that we didn't plan on and we would like to get out of as soon as we possibly can. When we enter into those situations, we become confused, angry, frustrated. How is it that the living God wants us to live? Uh, That's the question we want to try to answer this morning, and I'm telling you that that Answer is found for us in Daniel chapter 1. So make your way back to Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to to learn some important truths this morning. Here's what I'd like us to do I'd like to take a, a few moments and look at the text specifically. What is it that we are seeing? What was the author doing in Daniel chapter 1? And then on the other side of that text, I'd like us to take just a moment and discover a truth, a truth that God has placed in this passage that is for you, a specific Word of God in His Word. And then on the other side of that truth, we're going to see what sort of takeaways that we might have, things that will fit into our lives, things that we can do in the coming days to make sure that this truth... Is continually working in our lives. So that's where we're going. Look at the text, discover a truth, and then we'll see what the takeaways are with respect to that truth. As you come to this text, uh, there is a background to it. In fact, uh, the background is in Second uh, Kings chapter 24. There we are told that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, laid siege to to, to Jerusalem. In Daniel's passage, the first couple of verses, it seems like it was a very quick, very fast event, but actually it started somewhere around about uh, 604 B.C. goes all the way to 586. Almost 20 years in length, this siege took place on and off, on and off. And so it was a long siege, and finally, in Daniel chapter 1, we are told that Nebuchadnezzar captures the city. Now, as we look at this text, I only want us to see three specific things, three specific scenes that are going to help us to understand the truth of the passage. Now, in this scene, uh, there are, or in this passage, there is a scene of what I am calling loss. When I come to a passage like this, I'm I'm thinking of some people who have uh, found themselves in bad places, just like these individuals, for example. I'm thinking of a guy a number of years ago. uh, Carol and I were sitting in a Sunday school class, and uh, this couple had been attending the class for several weeks, and finally, he stood up doing a a prayer request time. And in the course of that, uh, one of the things that that he said uh, was, you know, he said about two months ago, he said, my boss... Uh, called me into the office and he said, listen, uh, uh, we have a transfer in, in, in plans for you. In, in fact, it's a good thing. If you accept this transfer, there will be a promotion, a new title. You'll get uh, higher income. And so I'm going to give you the weekend to think about it. And uh, sure enough, he went to his pastor. He talked about the transfer, went to their small group, asked the small group to pray, talked it over with their children, and the next Monday morning they accepted the transfer. And here he was in this Sunday school class about two months later and he stood up and said, "Uh, somehow I miss God's will. He said, I don't think my new boss likes me. I I find that I'm working hours that I I never really wanted to, to, to work this long. I don't see my wife that often, don't see my children. And he said, our daughter announced to us the other day she doesn't have any friends in high school and she wants to go back and live with another family in our bad home. He said, how in the world did we ever find ourselves in this place? I'm thinking of another friend, friend who worked for a multinational corporation for over 30 years. About two years ago, uh, in the fall of the year, he, he was starting to have some symptoms and some pain and the pain grew worse and he was admitted to the hospital, went into emergency surgery and uh, he, he thought he was on the other side of that. He thought maybe the problems were resolved. and. About two weeks later, he's rushed back to the hospital with the same complications, more surgery. In fact, he didn't get back to work until early February of that year. And it wasn't very long until being back at work, his boss called him in and said to him, "Uh, listen, uh, the company's going through some some difficult times and uh, we need to cut costs here and there. I'm sorry to tell you, we are eliminating your position. My friend, quite often, says to himself, says to his wife, says to other people, I don't understand this. I've been faithful, been faithful to God. Why am I in this situation? He's asking the same kind of questions that these individuals who were these captives taken back to Babylon Why am I in this place? And one of the things that's happening is in those places, we always experience loss. Notice some of the losses that are taking place. For example, you read through this text after the city of Jerusalem has been captured, and you discover that there is a loss of spiritual confidence. Here's why I say that. Back to verse 1. So basically, Nebuchadnezzar came after the city's captured. He's saying to his soldiers, get all of the things from the temple that you can possibly secure, and he takes them off. Basically, it was an in-your-face kind of strategy. I say that because what Nebuchadnezzar was doing to the children of Israel, the children of Judah, was saying to them, listen, my God is mightier than your God. Did your God deliver you? No, but my God has captured your city. And so the Hebrews at that point in time must have lost their spiritual confidence, wondering why in the world are they in this place? Why have they been taken from Judah back to Babylon? They've lost something else. They've lost their personal comfort. I say that because I want you to notice who these individuals are. Would you look at verse 3? Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, from the royal family and the nobility. Back in Jerusalem, these individuals, many of them, were people of prestige. Uh, When other individuals passed their way, they probably bowed down to them. They honored them, even in tough times. Now, all of that has changed. They're brought to Babylon and they are losing their personal comfort. Can't eat what they want to eat. Can't follow their dietary practices. They have to follow someone else's. And so they're losing their personal comfort. Personal spiritual confidence confidence is lost. Personal comfort is lost. They've lost something else as well. They are losing their personal freedom. They have no vote in the matter. Can't really say anything. Can't protest. I say that because of what The writer records for us in verse 4 Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. For three years, they went through a regimen in which they were learning the language and the ideas and the religion of another people. They've lost their personal freedom. Can't really argue against the king or they would have lost their lives. So there's a loss of spiritual confidence, loss of uh, personal comfort, and a loss of personal freedom. There's something else. It's perhaps the most serious and degrading of all. They begin to lose their personal identity. Would you look at what happens in verse 6? Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So basically, what Nebuchadnezzar was saying to them I'm changing everything. I'm even changing your names. And along with that, eventually you're going to change your identity. You're going to think like a Babylonian. You're going to live like a Babylonian. You're going to work like a Babylonian. And that's what was exactly happening to them. So one of the first scenes that we see in this passage is a scene of loss, and it's degrading the longer that it continues. That leads to a second scene. It begins in verse 8 and takes us all the way through verse 14. Uh, What we see in this next uh, passage or this next scene is what I'm referring to as investigation. Some people are doing some investigating, namely Daniel and his three friends. I want you to notice a key verse in verse 8. Here's what the first part of the verse says. But Daniel... Notice the next word. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Uh, Some of your translation might say something like, and Daniel decided, or Daniel made a strong determination. NIV says Daniel resolved. It's the idea that he made a strategic decision in which he said, I'm going to do something even if I might be risking my life along the way. Now, what in the world is Daniel investigating? Let me just pause to say something, and uh, I don't mean to offend anyone at this point in time. What we see happening in this passage is not a, a new diet plan created centuries ago, and now we're supposed to take the same diet plan and apply to our lives today. Maybe you've read the book. I uh, hate to say this or, or, or discourage you. It's not talking about a diet plan. As important as diet plans might be. What it's talking about is an investigation. Daniel and his friends are doing something. What are they doing? They are investigating. Let me use another word. Daniel is sanctifying himself. And you say, there you go, Harry, using preacher talk again. Well, what in the world do you mean by sanctifying himself? Uh, let's put it in these terms. What Daniel is doing is he is setting himself apart as if to say, God, I don't know this for certain, but I want to see if you are still active in my life and in our situation. He is investigating to see if God is still working. Say, Harry, but where do you get something like that? Let me read another obscure passage of Scripture. It's found in Proverbs chapter 23, verses 1 through 3. Listen to what it says. When you sit to dine with a ruler, note well what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are given to gluttony. Do not crave his delicacies, for that food is deceptive. Notice that last word. For that... Food is deceptive. How is the king's food possibly deceptive? Is it defiled because it's been placed before uh, idols? Uh, that couldn't possibly be the case. Uh, Daniel's going to ask to uh, eat only vegetables and water. The vegetables were probably also sacrificed to idols. All kinds of food uh, in the ancient world, that, that happened. So that couldn't possibly be what's happening in this passage. What Daniel is doing, he doesn't want to fall prey to the deception that their life is over. So just give in. Whatever the king says you should do, whatever the the king puts before you, just eat it because your life is over. That's what we say when we experience a bad transfer. When life doesn't go according to the script that we've written out, we assume that, well, I, I guess the only thing we can just give in, just go with the culture, go with the flow. And Daniel is investigating, looking around, saying, is that what we're going to do? God, are you still doing something? Notice what he does in the second part of verse 8. And he, that is Daniel, asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, we know in verse 15 that some of the other exiles, they actually took of the king's food. They ate those delicacies. They were deceived in the process, thinking that life was over. In this process, Daniel is waiting. His friends are waiting. The chief official is waiting. to say, what's going to happen? Surely these guys are going to look famished. And Daniel is saying, God, God, are you still in this situation? Are you still in this transfer? Now, that leads to a third scene, third observation that I want you to make. We've talked about losses. uh, Then we looked at investigation. And now I want you to note that there is some positioning that is taking place that gives evidence to the fact that God is still at work in the lives of these exiles. Look at verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. In other words, God has shown up. He's given special favor to Daniel and to his friends, and now they have the favor before uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. Not only that, God is placing them in a specific position to give counsel and insight to Nebuchadnezzar, and to those who would follow after him. How do we know that? Look at the last verse, verse 21. It's not a throwaway verse. It says, and Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. In other words, Daniel is now positioned not only with the kings, but to have a long reign, longer than the kings of Babylon themselves. So he's going to speak into their lives, as you will see if you read through the rest of the book of Daniel. Now, what are we to make of all of this? This chapter starts out with loss. It's followed by investigation. God, are you in this situation? Are you working on the other side of that? We see that Daniel and his friends are positioned exactly where God wants them to be. Say, would you make note of uh, what the author writes in verse 2? Three words, and the Lord delivered. Uh, Would you look at verse 9? It said... Now, God has caused the chief official to do something. Look at verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding. Why why do I call your attention to those three verses? Because this passage is not just about Daniel. It is about the living God. So, um, what about the bad circumstance that you're in right now? What about the transfer that you've undergone? Uh, what about the health situation that you're facing right now? Uh, what about the problems with the children, maybe even uh, problems in a marriage? Uh, what are we to make of all that? How does this passage apply to us? Listen up, because I said we were going to look at the text. On the other side of the text, we'd see a truth. Here's a truth that God wants you to take with you into the rest of your life. You see, your unwanted circumstances are God's platform to make Him known, to bring praise to the living God. Your unwanted circumstance in life, whatever they might be, are God's pulpit so that you can make much of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God wants us to see in this passage. Now, that leads to a third thing that I said we were going to do this morning. We're going to look at the text, then we discover a truth, and the truth is that our unwanted circumstances are God's platform so that we can proclaim Jesus, we can make much of Him. So, what do we take away from that truth? How does that fit into our lives? I'll tell you more in just a moment, but every time I read this passage, every time, I stand in awe I say, boy, here's a bad situation that has turned out better than what anyone could have thought. That's true of our situations, our bad circumstances as well. I stand in awe. In fact, if you remember that word awe, it will help you in remembering this week what you can do with this truth. Let's start with the first letter, the word A. Let's start with the idea of accept or accepting. Here's what I mean. You and I need to accept by faith that this principle, this truth, is true for us personally. It's true for us personally. But what we are accepting are a couple of different things. Here's the first thing. We are accepting the providential working of God in our lives. God works providentially. That means that absolutely everything that happens to everything that's taking place, we may not understand it, but God is using it for good. Uh, Let me recite a a verse that I do so with some reluctance, and I do so with with, with great caution. Here's the verse. You'll remember it. Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, some people, as soon as you hear that verse, I've heard that so many, I hate that verse, because we assume that God's allowing bad things, and so therefore God is, is a bad God. But if you read the next verse, verse 29, God is working all things together for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. And then He goes on to say, so that we might be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the point. Everything that happens in your life, whether it's good or bad, God is using it to fulfill His primary will for you. You know what His primary will for you is, don't you? To make you like Jesus. Not to make you the richest person in the world. Not to make you the most comfortable person in the world. Not to make you the most famous person in the world. God's purpose in your life and my life is to make us like the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to accept His providential working. Now, right along with that, we also need to come to the point where we accept the fact that God is good. God is not bad. God doesn't make bad things for us. God doesn't tempt us so that we will do bad things. God is good. Uh, James, the New Testament writer, says, Every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning. The Apostle John says that God cannot be tempted by sin. God does not uh, sin in any way. And so we need to understand that God is good in all that He does. His character is good and the way that God relates to you. He relates to you in goodness, even when at times we think the things that are happening are bad. So what do we need to do? We stand in awe of what this truth is all about, and we accept. We accept the providence of God, and we accept the goodness of God something else that we need to do. We also need to stand and to worship. I can't tell you specifically by pointing you to a verse in Daniel chapter 1 that says that that Daniel worshiped, but the writer is implying that. Whenever he says in verse 2, and the Lord delivered, whenever he says in verse 9, and God caused, and whenever he says in verse 17, and God gave knowledge and understanding. Daniel, after investigating the situation, must have understood, God, you are at work. We read through the rest of Daniel and we discover that Daniel is a praying man, a praying saint, and he's thanking God at every single opportunity. His days begin and end with him turning towards Jerusalem and praising and worship the living God. That's what we must do as well. Wherever we are, whatever the circumstance, we need to be ready to worship the one who has given us life. The third thing that we need to do, and that is we need to engage. The A stands for accept who God is, then we begin to worship God because we realize he's working all around us, and then we come to that point where we engage. We engage in life. Now, whenever I say that your bad circumstances are God's platform so that you might proclaim Him, I'm not saying that we get on that platform or on a soapbox, wherever we are, and we start to lecture people, and we scold individuals. No, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what this text is implying. I'm talking about engaging them because everywhere you go, you're going to discover that there are people who are hurting, just like you. And they need to know that there is hope, and that just as God has been working in your life and providing for you and assisting you and guiding you, He can do the same for them. When you have opportunity, tell them. Maybe it's uh, with a colleague. Maybe it's with a next-door neighbor. I don't know who it might be, but wherever you are, God is placing you, and He's saying, engage. Use this opportunity. Use your circumstances to make much of the living God. We accept, we worship, and we engage. Allow me to close with this. Very personal note with respect to Daniel chapter 1. This passage means a great deal to me and to my wife, Carol. Let me explain. Back in 2011, uh, we were living in northeastern Wisconsin, and uh, God was good to us. I was pastoring a wonderful church, a wonderful congregation. That year, they had extended to us a sabbatical, and so we took advantage of that, and, and we enjoyed our time away, similar to what Pastor Ray is doing right now. And, and then, um, after coming back from the sabbatical, um, one day, uh, Carol gave me a call and let me know that she had fainted at our home, and so our doctor said, well, you need to get her to the emergency room. Got her in the emergency room, discovered later that day, the next morning, that Carol's heart was not functioning properly, and she needed a pacemaker. Pacemaker was implanted, and we thought, Phew, that explains some of the problems, some of the symptoms that we've been seeing, so now we can go on with life. Everything will be fine. A couple of months later, uh, Carol went in for a normal routine exam, and it was discovered that she had cancer. And that whole process, surgery, followed by chemo, followed by radiation, and things started to change. We, Carol wasn't bouncing back the way we had hoped or had anticipated. So we talked with different people, different friends. We prayed, Lord, what do you want us to do? Talked with our children, and our children said something like this, Dad, Mom, you, you, you've been faithful in ministry. Uh, wh- why don't you think about it? You're, you're at an age where you can do it. Why don't you step away and take a little slower pace in life? Why don't you move back closer to us? That sounded uh, good to Carol, being closer to the kids. I didn't like the idea. The things that I loved to do, it, it just didn't appeal to me. But we made a decision. I felt this was the Lord's will for us, and so we put our home in the market and sold the home, and, and we moved back to this area. The day that we moved... was a rainy day, a terrible day. I won't go into all all the details, but but it was one of the worst days of our lives. It led to more meetings with doctors. After we got here, started talking with new doctors, and um, one of those doctors uh, called us in and gave us another diagnosis. And he said, uh, what you're facing right now is something that you're going to be facing not just for a limited time, but probably for years to come." And we cried, and we got our coats on, (laughs) and we went home. Our kids came and prayed for us, and other friends did the same. And for the next several days, we walked around the house like zombies. On our second floor, we, we have a room, and I've kind of turned it into a little bit of an office. We call it our reading room and our prayer room. And every morning, I would go in there, and I'd try to read the Bible, and I would tell God how angry I was at Him. How could He allow this to happen? Why would He put us in this place? Why would He do it now? And I'd try to read the Scriptures. And then one morning, I came to Daniel chapter 1. I thought, you know, I, I think I preached in Daniel chapter 1 years ago. Went on my computer, went back, found some of my notes, started reading those notes again. And I started studying the text again and realized that we were in a bad situation that we didn't sign up for, we didn't want. But God was saying, this is your platform. So, Harry, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to be mad? Are you going to be angry? Or are you and Carol going to make much of Jesus. Now, I want to tell you, we've had some good days, we've had some bad days, but we know without a doubt that the situation that we're going through is exactly where God wants us so that we can proclaim Jesus. We pray that we can do that when we go for doctor's visits. We we pray that we can do that when we meet with friends. We pray that we do that whenever we have opportunities to teach. Because that's God's will for us. And God sent me here this morning to tell you that whatever your circumstance might be, it's not as bad as you think. God is there. And He wants to join you, and He wants you to join Him so that you can make much of Jesus. So stand on that platform and live out God's will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know there are people here this morning, even as I end this sermon, who are still asking why. They're asking why about a disease. They're asking why about a relationship. They're asking why about a job. Oh, Father God, comfort them as they reflect on this chapter and these words. Plant the seeds of this truth deep in the soils of their heart and transform them into the people you want them to be, less and less like themselves and more and more like Jesus. And so it's in his name that we pray.
0: Amen. So that is the truth this morning, is it not? My soul cries out. I don't know where you are in your stage of life. I don't know how you came here to this place this morning. But all of us comes, all of us have come to a place where we have a platform in which to magnify God. For some, that platform feels heavy. For some, that platform is filled with Sadness and darkness, and for others, that platform is filled with joy. So, but wherever you are this morning, please know that God is with you. That he's never going to leave you, he's never going to forsake you. That is the good news, that we can leave here in strength with that today. Let me pray. Father, as we close this morning, we thank you. We thank you for your love and for your grace and for your mercy that you pour upon us. We thank you that you meet us in our darkest hour as well as our most joy filled hour. And that we never walk alone in any circumstances, but we walk with you. And so we cry out that we would continually be in awe. And so, Father, I pray for those this morning who today feels a little heavy. I ask, God, that you would bring encouragement. That you bring a sense of your presence into their situation. Wherever they are, whatever their experience is, God, that you would meet them right there in that moment. And God, as your church leaves this building today, we ask that you would give us hope and courage. That we'd be changed for having been in your presence this morning and in the presence of each other. That we would understand you more fully and we'd walk out of here transformed, renewed, refreshed, more in love with you than we were when we walked in this building. Lord, I pray for my friend Harry, for Carol. I ask God that you would bring comfort to their home, that you would bring a sense of peace, that you would guide every doctor's visit, every nurse's attention, every friend's prayer. And at the end of the day, God, we give you the glory for all that you do. But in this moment, we pray for a miracle. We ask for healing. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Will you thank Dr. Shields for me? Yeah. If this morning you'd like some prayer, there'll be folks down here who'd love to pray and would love to pray with you. So make your way down. Otherwise, have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.